Good morning, everybody. Our first Bible reading today is from Proverbs 11, verses 16 to 31. It's on page 550 of your Black Bibles. Give you a few moments to find it. We will hear from more of the wisdom of uh, King Solomon. Kind-hearted woman gains honour, but ruthless men gain only wealth. Those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. A wicked person earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Truly, the righteous attain life, but whoever pursues evil finds death. The Lord detests those whose hearts are perverse, but he delights in those whose ways are blameless. Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. The desire of the righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. Whoever seeks good finds favour, but evil comes to one who searches for it. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Whoever brings ruin on their family will inherit only wins, and the fool will be servant to the wise. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. If the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. Leona will bring our second reading. The second reading is from Titus, chapter 2, 1 to verse 10. You can find this on page 1030 in your Black Bible. Doing good for the sake of the gospel. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Leona. Hello, everybody. If we're yet to meet, my name is Nick. I'm one of your pastors here, and I get the joy of opening up Titus 2 with you. But not only I, but the brilliant and gifted Rowena is going to jump up. Come on, Rowena. Yeah, you're a clap. Who's also on our pastoral team here at 10. She's going to help us um, unpack this passage and understand it. So thanks, Ro. Um, I wonder what you picture when you think of a flourishing church. Maybe it's incredible worship services where nothing goes wrong and everything is smooth and crisp. I'm not sure. Maybe it's ministries that happen that it's just like, wow, we've got a men's ministry and a, a women's ministry and we've got a singles ministry and a married ministry and an older ministry and a younger Maybe it's a church that offers lots. Maybe it's the events, those big things that draw crowds. That's not the church that Paul describes. The healthy, flourishing church is people who are transformed by Jesus and who with other people have relationships where they sharpen each other so that everyone is continuing to grow to look more and more and more like Jesus. It's not flashy. It's not particularly impressive. And yet it is incredibly persuasive when you witness it. So we're going to just walk through Titus 2. We're going to see some incredible things shine out of this passage. But there's three points we want to look at. The first is Paul is calling us to have personal lives that adorn the gospel or make the gospel look beautiful. We need to be gospel people. The way that we get there is that we model it to one another. We, we example, we, we imitate those who go before us. We need to be a modeling people. And lastly, we're going to look at the, the specific things that make up who younger men, older women, younger, you know what I'm talking about, intentional people. How do we particularly cultivate that in us? So the first one here is that we need to live lives that adorn the gospel. So if you haven't got Titus 2 open, let's do that. Heads down, Bibles up. It's kind of like heads down, thumbs up when you're a kid. I'm not sure. Bibles up. What we see is verse 8. He's speaking to the young men and then to Titus, setting an example. And he says, do all of this so that... Those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Sounds kind of antagonistic and, and like he's targeting enemies and it's combative, but that's not true at all. The reality is that those who stand for Jesus will generate opposition. I'm sure if you've been walking with Christ for a while, you've experienced a taste of it. There are those who oppose, there are those who are hostile, but instead of being those who are defensive or aggressive, or attacking back at those who would fight, how do Christians stand? They live so beautifully in tune with Jesus that our opposition can, can't say anything wrong about us. We should shame those who oppose us by living such persuasive lives that the gospel looks beautiful. Verse 10, to put it positively, he's speaking again, he says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive as the world looks at you, they see Christianity. They create their picture of who Jesus is. Your life matters. Do you reflect the gospel? When your friends, your family, your colleagues, strangers at the cafe down the road look at you, do they see Jesus in you? St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel, and if you must, use words. It's cheeky. Don't get rid of the words. The words are important, right? Like we need to cl clearly proclaim Jesus. But there's something true in that. Our words are empty if our lives don't reflect the truth. The people around us will not listen to anything we have to say if there's not something within us. I think about the amount of testimonies I've heard of the years where someone says, I wasn't really interested, but I had this friend. There was just something about them. 
You know, they just had this joy. They just had this, something persuade. they had something that I wanted. So I was like, okay, I'll go to church. And that's the beginning of the story where someone comes, the amount of times I've heard that, and it's because it's right here. People come to faith largely through Christian people living, breathing, embodying the way of Jesus. And Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Where to shine. Lights in this world of darkness. Not hiding, but exuding. Thanks, Nick. Well, good morning, everyone. Hi, 10 a.m. It is a great privilege to be here this morning opening the word with you and to get to preach alongside Nick. So as Nick has just said, there is a reason why Paul is urging Titus to teach his community to live in the specific ways that we've heard read about this morning. There is a reason why role modeling and specifically intergenerational relationships are being encouraged in Titus 2. And this is because, as Nick said, it is the way that we live our lives and not just the words that we speak that makes the gospel attractive. How we live as followers of Jesus influences how people see Jesus. All of us have been given the privilege and the responsibility, as Titus 2.10 states, of making the teaching of God our Saviour attractive. Now, one of the things that I love the most about being here at church as an intern, and forgive me, you will know this, is that I get to help out in our Explore courses, which um, are Christianity Explored and Alpha. And this is a chance for people to come along and investigate the Christian faith. And um, each term, we have the wonderful privilege of having people come to us to hear about Jesus. But time and time again, it's the stories and experiences of people who come to our courses. They center around the beautiful sense of community and family that are both integral and intentional to how these courses are run. We eat a meal together, we find out about each other, and everybody is accepted, no matter what their beliefs, wherever they've come from, they are welcome and they belong. And I have a friend who did the Alpha course a couple of years ago, and she said when she first stepped through the doors for the first few weeks, she was very skeptical of us. She was very, very suspicious of our smiles and of our welcome and of our always asking her how her week had been, and she wasn't quite sure how to take us. But she said after a couple of weeks, she came to see that the love and the care that we were professing was in fact genuine. And she also said that at that time in her life, she was going through significant trauma. She was going through a lot emotionally, and she said when she came, she didn't really remember what was being taught. From week in to week out, she couldn't remember what each topic was. But the reason why she kept coming back was because of the family and the community and the love that she experienced through sitting on a table, chatting with one another, and feeling accepted and included. Now, after she did Alpha, she did Christianity Explored, and then she gave her life to Jesus. And she did this because, yes, the Holy Spirit was working, but the Holy Spirit was working through the body of Christ, through Christians being Christians, through the love of Jesus being shown and demonstrated. She found this so compelling and so attractive that she wanted Jesus. She wanted what we had. She wanted the Lord. Now, for me, when I was a teenager, I read a book 
that really beautifully described the gospel in all of its beauty, as Nick was talking about. It was a book that had a big impact on me. Some of you may know it. Um, it's called The Cross and the Switchblade, and it was written by um, an American evangelist and pastor called David Wilkerson. Now, this was, at the time, a very influential book, and in America, it was compulsory reading for teenage kids. So it was about a man, David Wilkerson, and his work with street gangs and teenagers in the 1950s and 60s in New York. Now, this was not just a man who would preach the gospel and then retreat back into his cosy life with his family. He actually moved his entire family from a rural parish in Pennsylvania into the very heart of Brooklyn. And he did this so that he could show those hurt and lost and broken teenagers, many of whom had committed violent crimes, many of whom were addicts, and had come from incredibly dysfunctional backgrounds. He wanted to show them the love of Jesus and what the gospel actually meant. Now, David Wilkerson set up many houses all throughout Brooklyn, and they were headed by a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, who would become a mum and dad. And he would put teenagers in these houses so that they could live with and have a new family created for them. These teenagers were loved and their lives were transformed by the real and practical and sometimes messy outworking of the gospel. So we, as followers of Jesus, have been called to live our lives in a way that shines a light on the beauty and the truth and the wisdom of Jesus and his teachings and who he is. Now, how do we do this? As Nick said, we do this as presented in Titus 2 by role modeling, by providing living and breathing examples to our brothers and sisters in church, but also to those outside of church, what a life with Christ can actually look like when lived well. Now, God is probably not going to call all of us to move from where we are and go somewhere else and preach the gospel in a whole different place, although he might do that with some of us. But what he's calling us to do right now today is to look around, to see the people right in front of us and to be mindful of those who might need an older sister or a wise friend or a father or even a grandmother to walk in relationship with and to be mentored and encouraged by to imitate and to be strengthened in their relationship with Jesus. Now, how does Paul encourage Titus to make sure that these healthy relationships and modeling and discipling is taking place? Well, the word teach is used six times in these verses, including Titus 2 verse 3, where he says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent so that they will be able to teach what is good. Well, what does Paul mean by teach? Of course, as Nick said, it is important, it is vitally important for us to use our words. We need to use our words to speak about God and how we're being called to live. But people don't just learn and grow into faith by having content passed on to them verbally. People mature and they grow closer to Jesus and become more like him through watching and imitating the lives of the people around them. And teaching encompasses both words and actions. Now, Jesus, of course, shows us how this works in the Gospels. Jesus did so much teaching in his years in ministry, in his three years, and he was heard by thousands of people, and no doubt their lives were changed and transformed by what he said. However, Jesus also spent three years living with and speaking to and demonstrating face-to-face -face the kingdom of God with a close few, and those are the ones who went out and changed the world. So Jesus invited his disciples into life with him. He didn't hold them at arm's length. The disciples lived with him, they traveled with him, they ate with him, they laughed with him, they got to perform signs and wonders alongside of him, and he also invited him, them into some of the deepest and darkest suffering that he experienced. Our wonderful um, children's pastor, Naomi DeVries, helped me a lot when I was preparing this message, and I love one of her articles that she wrote on modeling the gospel. I'm going to quote her. 
She says, Christ-likeness is learned through relationships with mature Christians who enact the gospel for us in their lives so that we can imitate it. And I wonder if for all of us here, there are people who come to mind who need someone exactly like us, like you, to enact the gospel for them, to be those disciples and mentors and encouragers. And maybe that's something to pray about within the coming week. Maybe there's already someone in your mind. It's interesting that Steve talked about cricket because I'm going to give a cricket example as well. Um, a few weeks ago, I was at the beach and I had a perfect example of how well modelling can work. Um, there were a group of kids playing cricket off to the side and they were all different ages. You had some 12-year-olds, maybe some 10-year-olds and then a little girl on the side who was about six or seven. Now, I've nicknamed these kids the utopian children because I just could not believe how beautifully they were playing this game of cricket. Um, there was cooperation. The children were encouraging one another. There was clear leadership, though there were no adults around. Um, there was no mockery. If somebody messed up, if they missed the ball, or if they didn't bowl properly, nobody was making fun of them. I, I, it was almost as if um, God had taken a scene from eternity, something that we would be experiencing one day, and put it right in front of me just to show me something. What I loved the best was this little girl, this little six-year-old. They were constantly making sure she was having a turn. They were making sure she got to bat. They were making sure she got to bowl. And when she messed up, she didn't know how to play it. They were just so great. They were clapping her, and they were saying, yay, Poppy, well done, Poppy. And as I was watching these kids, what came into my mind was, they must have amazing parents or families or teachers or role models because this kind of thing doesn't just come instinctively. I've worked with children my entire life and I know what they're like. Even though I'm not a parent, I certainly am experienced in children and I know that this isn't normal for children playing cricket together without adult supervision. And I, when I walked off, I saw the parents sitting there at the table and I wanted to go and congratulate them and tell them how great I thought their kids were, but I just thought that would be a bit weird, so I didn't. But... Um, I'm telling you this story because ultimately, isn't that what we want? Don't we want people to look at us as a community of Jesus' followers and see a group of people who are looking after one another, who are mentoring and encouraging one another? And wouldn't we want people to then say, well, they must have an amazing father. Like this Jesus thing, there must be something in it. And again, it's our goal as Titus 2 verse 10 states, it's our goal that in every way, that in every way we live our lives, we will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. That's right. I want whatever they're feeding those kids. That's awesome. Um, it's a compelling picture of what we could be. But I think we need to rethink how we get there. We like clean. We like simple. We like structured. And so we go, okay, I go to church. I attend growth group. And potentially I have a nice quiet time whenever I can fit it into my schedule. And like these are the things that will make me into the Christ-like person that I long to be. And don't get me wrong, every single one of those things is not just a good thing, but an essential thing. But if that is our whole picture of discipleship, of growing into the, the image of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, we've kind of missed the picture. It's not enough. It really isn't. Paul is suggesting that primarily... The way in which we grow is life on life. It's in the mess. It's in relationship. It's, it's through people primarily, together, seeking Jesus as one. We teach by modeling, and it, it, there's this picture of older and younger, and of, of even just this sense of imitating those who are further along in the journey of Christ, and that's what we need. You look at verse 4, and you've got this picture of the older women teaching the younger women. 
They say, then the older women can urge the younger women to X, Y, Z. You come to verse 7, after speaking about the young men, he speaks to Titus. He says, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In everything, set them an example. It's not just the baseline of if we stick someone up on the stage, they're not engaged in any sin that we can point to. It's not just like a baseline thing. It's in everything that you are, model this incredible picture of what Jesus could look like. The way that we get there is we need to have close, immersive, vulnerable relationships. You can't see what it's like to do marriage and parenting without stepping into someone's home and seeing the tantrums, right? But you can't, you can't see what it looks like to deal with healthy conflict in relationships without stepping into con- conflict. We love to keep things clean and tidy. We love to present a view that, so that others see us and they think well of us. But if that is the church, we've neutered ourselves. We've lost our opportunity for truly growing into the people that God would have us. Can I offer a specific word for us here at 10 a.m.? We have a beautiful congregation of people from so many different age groups and demographics, and it's one of my favorite things I love about 10. People ask me, oh, so 10 a.m. is just the family service. It's not at all. We have kids, and we have kids' church, and we have that. It's beautiful. But my fear is we will naturally continue to gravitate to those who are like us. We will, we will maintain relationships with those who are in the same life stage. Because it's easier, right? If you've got young kids who are absolutely nuts, of course it's easier to hang out with people who have young kids because you just let them be nuts together, right? Like, it's a thing. And praise the Lord for other crazy kids. It's a good thing. But if that's the extent of our fellowship and our church life together, where am I going to learn what it means to raise those crazy young kids? And where are you going to learn what it means to be single as you enter your 30s and your 40s without spending that time with someone who's walked before you? We need that moment together. Another word for us is 10 a.m. It's busy. Life is busy. We live in a very busy part of the world. And if our model for discipleship was simply church and connect group and all those sorts of things, I think even if that was how we'd grow, we would probably be failing Because suddenly, when life gets hard, church becomes the twice-a-month thing that we go to. It's very difficult to to build a vulnerable relationship where we can be real with one another when I see you only every other Sunday, when it's only a casual conversation over morning tea. Again, those things are very important to our time together here. And of course, you can't know everyone with that level of depth. But how do you come to know a few with the level of depth that you could model to someone younger and you could look to someone older? We need time together. Can I urge you, do not let the busyness of your life drown out our life together as a church, not just for the sake of the church, because that is true, but for your sake, because you will be losing the opportunity to grow into who you would be otherwise. Does that make sense? I really hope that that helps us, because it is hard, but there is something beautiful that God has for us. Now, let's zoom in. Let's get to what it means to be intentional people, thinking about who we are at our season of life and who God's made us to be. There's all sorts of specific characteristics that Paul writes about. Younger women, older women, younger men, older men, slaves. We'll get to the slaves in a minute. You've got to see that this is written for the Cretan first century church. So this is going to have some context to it. 
This is, you know, Paul's not just writing in a vacuum to all churches everywhere. He's writing to Titus about specific people. In the previous chapter, he took a shot at all Cretan people and said they were lazy gluttons. You know, there's context here, right? So we're not supposed to just read it and go import onto my life, but we are supposed to see that, that God is speaking an enduring universal truth about men and women, young and old, and how they are to flourish in Christ from that context. So we want to look at it and see how we can paint a picture of what it means for us today. And I want to suggest that one of the main points that shines out of this whole section is a single characteristic, and that is self-control. It's not very exciting. In fact, it's not very easy. (laughs) It's hard in this this world where everything comes to us so easily, but self-control oozes out of this section. Verse 2, teach the older men to be self-controlled. Verse 5, teach the older women to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men, the first characteristic, self-controlled, because what are young men? Not self-controlled, right? When you consider each demographic and you consider the different characteristics that Paul's suggesting, underneath all of them requires some measure of self-control, of denying the self and choosing what is good and what is Christ. We know that when you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, that beautiful spiritual work that God does in us, what's the last fruit of the Spirit? It's self-control. It's not like pull yourself up by your shoes and be better. It's as you press deeper into God, He gives us this self-control that we then employ to become who we were meant to be. So I want to talk to the older men, the younger men, and the slaves, if there's any slaves here, um, Specifically, and then Roe will talk to the women and we'll, we'll pray to wrap up. So the, the older men first. First, John Stott says that Paul here is addressing the gray beards of the flock. Got any gray beards in the room? Bless you, brothers. We love you. Yeah, we've got a couple hands going up. That's good. There, there are a bunch of characteristics in verse 2 to describe what the older men are to be. But let me try and catch them in two words. The first one is dignity. Older men are to have dignity. He says, teach the older men to be temperate worthy of respect, self-controlled. I think what this means is not that we are some boring, stoic man who holds it all in and, you know, has this sense of, okay, I have it all together and I can be the example to everyone else. It's this sense of being this beacon of Christ-like masculinity, where your outer life expresses the inner life that is true. It's this picture of integrity, We respect people who are whole in what they say they are. So to be a man who through many years and through many experiences is pursuing Jesus and living for him, we ought to see this sense of respect and and a a temperate nature and a self-control because you've been and weathered through so many things. And that's exactly what the young men in this congregation need to see in you. They need to see a life that has weathered storms and come through anchored in Jesus. And so there's an integrity there. But then you've got sound in faith, in love, and endurance. And so it shouldn't be this like uber masculinity that doesn't involve any emotion. That's not Jesus at all, and that's not who he's calling us to be. We should see in our older men this overflowing of love, a love for God and a love for people. We should see endurance, that you have weathered those storms, and yet you are holding firm to Christ. And we should see a soundness in faith, that through all that you've experienced, you're holding firm to the gospel and the truth there. As a younger man, let me tell you, I am inspired by the older men in this congregation. I am. 
I'm so blessed by you. I get the joy of being a pastor, but that does not mean I'm not a younger man looking to you as you walk the walk of Christ. I'm so thankful for the seasons you've walked and the way you embody this. Let me encourage you, keep going because the way you live is being watched and it matters. Now to the younger men like me, the younger tendency of young men, impulsive, irresponsible, focused on self-gratification, not me, but some people. Titus's picture here is very countercultural because he's saying, first and foremost, be self-controlled. Don't be dictated by your desire and don't be dictated by this world around you. He says, be serious in verse 7. So there's this sense that, of course, as a younger man, you are still young. You can still be fun. You can still, you know, be the person that you are in youthfulness. But there's a seriousness in which you take those things that matter seriously. We're not flippant. We're not just enjoying life as, you know, glorified adolescents who haven't actually grown up. No, we've taken responsibility for what matters, including our faith. We're not content drifting through life, but putting our roots deep in God. This talk about speech, it's not just about not cursing and swearing like those around us, but it's this sense in which we use our language and our relationships to build others up and to honor people and to encourage people. That's just so counter to what the rest of the young men in the world look like. And it's this picture of instead of doing whatever you feel like when you do it, it's cultivating this life of of choosing what is God again and again and again. And that is persuasive. That shines to the world around us. And the way that you'll cultivate these things, find a gray beard. Find an older brother. Find a father in the faith. Find someone who you can not just look at from a distance, but invite to say, hey, would, would you mind if we do life together and I can see a bit of how you do this and you give me some wisdom as I walk through this? It's so important that we don't just try and do this siloed in our lane, trying to do it on our own. But Paul is saying we grow in these relationships together, and that's the beauty of the church. Now, quickly, on slaves, I don't have a lot of time, so I'll just big picture, and if you want to talk more, we can talk afterwards. This is not condoning slavery. Um, the modern slave trade was largely outlawed because of Christians. Um, right from the beginning of Scripture, we see that God does not condone slavery. Exodus 21, 16 Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Being made in the image of God matters. So what's the deal? Why are we talking about slavery? Well, in the ancient world, there were two types of slave. There was the abducted kind, which we know about. It's the modern form of slavery. And then there was the bankruptcy kind. This sense that in an ancient economy, when you started to accrue debt or lose any sense of income, and you were unable to look after your family, what would you do? In a normal situation, everyone would go hungry and you wouldn't have many options. So your option was to indenture yourself to someone, to become a bond servant or a slave. Not that you become property for someone else's ownership, but that that person would be able to claim your work and your time as a part of your existence because you were bankrupt. It wasn't forever, and there were many Old Testament stipulations about how you would go about um, winning your freedom and you had rights in that situation, but that's the kind of slavery that we're being talked about here. You do need to wrestle. Why didn't Paul just say, overthrow your masters and become free? In other sections, he alludes to the fact, if you can be free, be free. But what he is saying here is, in your context, obey your masters in such a way that the gospel shines. Immediate practical application. How do you function in your workplace? Not to say that you're a slave to your work. I mean, some of you might be. But it's more to say the way that we behave in that relationship still shines the gospel. And so we need to take that seriously. 
older men, younger men, slaves. The, the thing here is this picture of living together with vulnerability so that we can shine the gospel. I think as well with that idea of older men, younger women, older <coughs> women, younger men, probably for a lot of us here, we would find ourselves in both of those categories. So for some of us, we are older women to other people. Other of us are younger to older. So I think a lot of the things we're talking about can actually apply across the board as well. <clears throat> but I wanted to paint a picture for you of an older woman who has had a great impact on me recently. Um, she's taken on a mentor role in my life, and for that I'm very grateful. As interns, we have supervisors and we also have mentors. But before I talk about her, let's read Titus 2 verse 3. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. Now, I love that word reverent. In this context, the definition of reverent is holding a holy or a priestly office. It's a word that is associated with the sacred and with the divine. This idea that you are serving the Lord by being as a priest or a priestess to those around you. And I love this description of what a reverent older woman should look like by John Stott who wrote a great commentary on this passage. He wrote, A reverent woman is one who practices the presence of God and allows their sense of his presence to permeate their whole lives. I know, I thought that was absolutely beautiful. And this woman who has become my mentor has such a peace about her that after only about 10 minutes in her company, I felt myself calming down and slowing down and being so affected by the peace and the presence of God in her life. It was so evident about her. She was Titus too in action, and as an older woman myself in many contexts, I would love to be a carrier of that kind of peace and presence, and yes, someone that I really look up to and want to aspire to be like. So a reverent older woman does not slander or gossip about other people. Now, interestingly, that word slander is the same word that we use to describe the devil and what he does, diablos. So if you're a slanderer, you are doing the devil's work. He does nothing but accuse the brethren all day long. And so you can't be reverent and be a slanderer at the same time. It's really important, the words that come out of our mouth. She's not excessive in her appetites. She's a woman of such beautiful character that she's able to teach and model the Christian life to the younger women and to have something to aspire to, someone who shows what a life lived with God can look like. So what does Paul say specifically um, about younger women? Well, in verse 4, he says, younger women should be urged to love their husbands and their children. Well, I'm going to bring that into a 2023 context. And perhaps looking at it in the world that we live in today, she's a woman who prioritizes the people in her world and the relationships in her life rather than being consumed by the pursuit of entertainment or the acquisition of stuff or of things that hold no real weight or purpose. She's a woman who cares for and nurtures the relationships in her life, whether she's married with children or single. She's a woman who exercises self-control in the way that she speaks, who is known for her kindness and for the way that she pulls people up. She builds them up rather than tearing them down. Now, verse 5, when Paul talks about busyness in the home, what does that look like? Um, again, I found the writings of John Stott to be really helpful. He says, when it comes to busy at home, this actually means working at home, and in the first century, many women worked in industry from their home. So they had a professional life, but they would often do it from within their house. So this allows for women whose sole work is to look after their families, as well as women who might have professional lives from outside the home. 
What is affirmed, though, is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love them and not neglect them. So it is idleness and lack of self-control that Paul is warning against here. And I did find that helpful, especially in the world that we live in today. So again, and finally, why is Paul urging us as older and younger men and women to live these ways? So as we've read before, so that verse 10, the teaching about God, our Savior, is attractive. And in verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. And as Nick said, the way that we live our lives mattered and matters, and whether we like it or not, we are being watched. We are being studied and we're being judged by whether our words and our actions actually line up with Jesus' message of self-sacrificial love and kindness and honour and obedience to the word of God and the life that Jesus gave up to us. And Justin mentioned that as well. Right now the world's looking at us and seeing what we're trying to do. What are we doing as Christians? How are we loving those who are coming into our city? To sum up, this Christian life, this life that we're called to live, is at times a life full of great joy and peace. It can be an incredibly fulfilling and incredibly rich life. And I wouldn't be here right now if I didn't believe that life lived with Jesus is the greatest life that someone can live. But in no way is the Christian life easy. No way does life with Jesus protect us from hardship or disappointment or pain or suffering or doubt or confusion. It's hard to live this way. It is hard to be self-controlled. It is hard not to slander sometimes. It's hard to be kind all the time because things are going on. We can't live this Christian life on our own. It's impossible. It's not how we were designed, and it's not what God intended. The beauty of the passage we've looked at today is that we've been given clear guidelines from God as how men and women can live together in community, modeling Christ to one another, learning by example and imitation, becoming mature believers, and then becoming models to those younger than us or new in the faith, those who could really benefit from our experience, our relationship with God, and our example. So I'm going to close now, and I'd love to close in prayer. So if you'd like to bow your heads, and we'll all pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those men and women of faith who have gone before us. Thank you for the early church for Paul and the disciples who laid down their lives to make sure that the gospel was preached in spirit and in truth. Thank you for those whom throughout the centuries have steadfastly defended your word and preserved it for us today. Thank you for those men and women who have been instrumental in our lives, mentoring, discipling, teaching us through words and through the openness of their lives lived with you. Thank you for our pastors, our connect group leaders, our volunteers, our young adults, youth and children's leaders who give their lives away every day for the sake of others. Help us to say yes as the baton is passed to us in this generation that we would be those who continue to share your word and live the lives you've called us to, to bringing those alongside us to love, shepherd and encourage. And please bring people into our lives to love and care for us as we need to be loved and cared for. Please reassure us of your great love and care for us as we walk into the week ahead. And that, Lord, even if people fail us, even if people have failed us, you never will. And we bring these things before you in the incomparable name of Jesus, your Son.